You mentioned uh, the RF jammers. That's exactly what they exist for, is to take the battlefield or any scenario and essentially eliminate all communications of anybody that's in that, in that scenario. Now, with optical comms, uh, that RF jammer won't work. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. That, Downlink listeners, is not just an annoying sound. It's what wobbler jamming sounds like. In fact, that audio was recorded roughly two months ago in Brownsville, Texas. It comes from Cuba, and this is called the woodpecker. When you get a sound, the jammer wants you to know that your radio frequency or RF signal is being jammed. It's called obvious jamming. But when the perpetrator doesn't want you to know, you get silence, which is kind of the point of jamming to silence or to stop the ability to communicate. It doesn't matter if it's by cell phone, radio, or satellite, and the data format doesn't matter either. That's because all three use the radio frequency part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Jamming gums up audio, video, and data. And then there's spoofing. That's when an adversary transmits an RF signal that seems like it's from friendly forces, but actually it's a fake. In fact, in late June this year, Russia spoofed the U.S. Ross's automatic identification system satellite transponder signal. So satellite tracking put the destroyer five miles off the coast of Russian-occupied Crimea. All the while, the Ross was actually in port in Odessa Harbor. Some days earlier, the same thing happened with the HMS Defender, but before that spoof was identified, Russia's Ministry of Defense had put out dramatic video of a naval confrontation, the British news media took the bait, and politicians tweeted on a lie. So it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see how jamming or spoofing satellite transmissions can compromise or even cripple political decision-making and military command and control. On this episode of The Downlink, we're going to learn about satellite communications over the light part of the electromagnetic spectrum, called laser communication or optical wireless communication. DARPA, the Space Development Agency, the United States Space Force, they're all working with the commercial sector to develop and deploy laser satellite communication, which by all accounts is near impossible to jam, spoof, intercept, or even detect. I spoke with Barry Matsumori to shed some more light on optical communication. He worked for Qualcomm for almost two decades before joining SpaceX and then Virgin Galactic. Now he's the CEO of Bridgecom. Hey, Barry. Thank Hi. you. Thank you for coming on the downlink. Great to be here. You know, tell the audience, you know, what it is that you do. You know, you have a pretty incredible background. So I am the CEO of a company called Bridgecom. Bridgecom is doing optical wireless communications, uh, primarily with lasers. Your company, Bridgecom, which is headquartered in Denver, you know, yes. you're the first company to commercialize optical wireless communication for use in satellites. Now, before we get into that, could you explain what is optical wireless communications? Yes, there are several categories of lasers. There are certainly very high energy or 
what the uh, governments call directed energy kind of lasers. Those are meant for destructive purposes. Those are thousands of kilowatts. We are communications, very low power. We're talking about single digit watts kind of communications. So that's one big difference. But what is optical communications? It's simply a way to get signal information from point A to point B. Think about your laser pointer that everybody knows about and they've used. It shines a laser beam from a transmitter, that laser pointer, to a receiver, an object that you're pointing to. That's pretty simple. Now, if you press that button on that laser pointer, you can do Morse code. You are transmitting data, albeit very slowly, but you are. Take that and speed it up quite a bit. And what you can do is transmit more data than what uh, radio frequency RF can do. Well, to follow on with that, what's the difference or what's the advantage of laser communication versus say using radio frequencies? I mean, this is something that the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA and the Space Development Agency and others are pursuing. And they put out RFPs and all all sorts of, of questions around that that they've been trying to get answered from industry. But why? What, what's the point? It's, it's a great question because the reason that everyone, whether it's with a space development agency, DARPA, the commercial companies, for communications between satellites, what we call inter-satellite links, they've all gone to optical communications because they need the speed. The speed that's required is tens of gigabits, if not hundreds of gigabits per second. And RF is challenged to provide those kind of speeds. Why do those link links need so much speed? It's the equivalent of a network that is sitting in space, the same network that's sitting on the ground. Fiber optic networks that you and I know that connect us all on Earth, they're very high speed because of that connectivity load that happens when you're combining several forms of traffic from point A and it's going to another point, another node, same thing happens in space with their network. Also, aren't there some other advantages? When we're thinking about space and um, space communications and defense, there's been a lot of activity, even somewhat recently, about spoofing, jamming, dazzling. Yes. Will this be able to, to solve that? Security is definitely a big uh, criteria that optical communications can can help and and benefit. Uh, Because you're using such a narrow beam, unlike RF, RF uh, distributes a signal to a broad number of users. The good news is it's point to multipoint. That's what our cell phones do. That's how they all work. It's great. The problem is that it goes to unintended parties. And in the cell phone world, the mobile phone world, that's called interference. That's why entities like the FCC exist because they're trying to manage the interference between users. Uh, but with optical communications, because the beam is so, it's collimated, it's so narrow, there's very little to no interference. That, the other side effect though, is that it only goes to the intended user. So therefore security by definition is enhanced. There's no such thing as if you're in an embassy compound and if you're outside the embassy listening to, to emitted signals, There's no such thing as hearing RF signals that 
may be encrypted, but you've got the signal and you just have to decrypt it. Here, they'll never get the signal because it's never directed towards them. You mentioned uh, the RF jammers. That's exactly what they exist for, is to take the battlefield or any scenario and essentially eliminate all communications of anybody that's in that, in that scenario. Now, with optical comms, uh, that RF jammer won't work. You did mention dazzlers. That dazzlers are in the optical world. That said, a dazzler to work broadly in any given battlefield uh, area is quite difficult. It's quite difficult to aim at the target. It's quite difficult to know where the target is. One of, one of the key parameters of what's being done now is most everybody is using 1,550 nanometer wavelength, and that is infrared, meaning it's difficult to see, difficult to detect. What are the effects on the amount of data and the rate of data? And then when you start thinking about optical, what would be, what would be the differences between the two? Great question. It's <clears throat> um, all data throughput is directly proportional to how much spectrum you have available. The more spectrum you have available, the more data you can push through. And so it is possible that RF can get a huge amount of spectrum to try to keep up with optical. The challenge then is the, uh, the RF equipment to duplicate that will, the cost will become several times more than what's done in the optical domain. So it's technically possible, the cost will overwhelm. That's why that would never happen. Once you get up to the frequencies that optical is at, it is extremely wide. And hence we can put lots of data through. And then on the flip side, I mean, there are some disadvantages, I mean, like, like weather being one of them or being on the go, because if, if you have a communication coming from a satellite, it's, it's one thing to direct it towards a stationary object, such as a receiver on an embassy, <clears throat> but what if you're in a Humvee or what if you're in a helicopter or what if you're in a, in a plane and you really do want to enjoy that throughput, that, that incredible amount of data that can come through using um, optical communication, but it's not stationary or there's fog. What happens then? So the two factors, the mobility and environment, I'll take the mobility one first. This is one of the reasons why BridgeCom exists is we've developed the ability to do tracking and be able to follow mobile devices uh, so that, and we've demonstrated that capability so that with optical, there is no, no barrier around uh, supporting mobility. Now, some solutions use what's called mechanical gimbals. Uh, essentially, it's a servo motor mechanical device that spins the optical telescope, the telescope around to meet a target. The problem is they're inherently slow, power hungry, and cause uh, undue vibration and a few other side effects. We don't use any of that. We can move in microseconds to be able to retarget to a user or uh, follow them on the go as they're moving. So that's the mobility point. Secondly, and by the way, that's unique to BridgeCom. Nobody else in the industry has this. Secondly, uh, with respect to environment, you're absolutely correct. Uh, since early days, the photons battle with things like fog, which are very small droplets of water, or smoke. Uh, there are optimization techniques that are in the vogue because there is no other spectrum of that best, best spectrum available anymore. So everyone's going high. And as you go higher, 
you hit the same effects that optical has, except that the speeds can't be du duplicated and the propagation is actually much worse. So with optical, it actually will propagate better uh, in those higher spectrums. It is yet another challenge that I, I think that you know, optical communications companies would be facing would be the problem of legacy systems. There's a lot of money that's been invested in putting mm -hmm. up you know, radio frequencies, yes. uh, communicating satellites, and also their downlinks, their downlink stations that are receiving mm -hmm. radio frequencies. Are organizations, both government and private, are they changing how they're communicating or are they staying stuck in radio frequency signals because, well, that's just what the legacy system is? The best way to address that is to look at mobile telephony, what's happened with our mobile terminals, and to see the progressions through the Gs. It's not that a former mode is just abandoned. It's that it is augmented by the next mode. And that's the way to look at optical communications. It's, it's a mode that will augment the legacy. So RF isn't going away anytime soon. But in order to maintain the speeds, in order to have security, there's be this mode that supports that. And if for environmental reasons or whatever, there needs to be a, a reason to go to a backup mode, one would do that. That way you keep your quality of service very high. What's intrigued me, especially when I've looked in your background, I mean, you, you've worked for Qualcomm, you've worked for SpaceX, you've worked for Virgin Galactic. What got you interested enough in optical wireless communication to start a company? And why hasn't anyone else thought of, of a communications company like this before? The, the notion of optical communications has been around for a while. And for me, what's interesting is it was a combination of the telecommunications background that I have from Qualcomm and the space background, which I've had from several companies, and being able to combine the two into a communications company that is really trying to advance the technology. If we were doing just kind of standard point-to-point, -point, what I mentioned before, communications, I think we'd be a me too. But because we're trying to advance the art to this point-to-multi-point to be able to cover several users, to cover tracking and mobility, all that, um, we're really breaking the mold. What is the future of optical wireless communication? Where are the trends going? What do you see? I see across the board, whether it's in space, whether it's in the air, on the ground terrestrially, um, or with, with maritime, that, that it will be part of, uh, be a complementary technology to what's happening in RF. Whether on the battlefield, you're in a, some sort of Humvee-like vehicle, and you're communicating privately between troops in an RF-denied environment, to a infrastructure company, mobile infrastructure company, that has very high speed links they need or being able to talk in a mesh network in the air between aircraft. Um, all of that is part of what's gonna happen. And uh, I do hope that Bridgecom is part of it, but actually it's gonna become a very large industry complementing the size of the RF industry as it already exists. Thank you so much for giving your, me your time, Barry. Sure thing. 
It's because of those very attributes that Barry was just explaining and the customer base that multi-million dollar deals are being made for the relatively nascent technology. Just this week, Voyager Space Holdings announced that it was acquiring a majority stake in Space Micro for an undisclosed amount. Space Micro is one of a handful of companies that have been pioneering satellite laser communication. Here's my conversation with David Jakowski, Space Micro's co-founder and CEO. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on the downlink. Well, thanks for having me, Laura. I'm pleased to be here. Could you take a moment to tell the audience about yourself? Well, I'm uh, David Jakowski, and I'm the CEO of uh, Space Micro Incorporated and one of the uh, one of the two founders that started the company. What exactly does Space Micro do? Your company has worked with NASA and the U.S. Space Force. So Space Micro started um, approximately 19 years ago, a little over 19 years ago, and we started to uh, build satellite electronics out of more advanced components that are commercial-based. The industry has had a propensity to build their own chips that are uh, suitable for space, but generally two or three generations behind commercial devices. And so one of our core expertise, even prior to this company and previous companies, is the ability to figure out how to take commercial parts and uh, characterize them for their uh, the areas that are special for space, like in particular radiation, but can be other areas like their packaging, and put mitigation technologies on them and effectively use commercial devices in space. So simply put, take laptop or phone electronics and use them in space where others have been unable to because they'll have faults or they'll die in space. And so we started our company 19 years ago to do that, started with computer boards and uh, focusing on microprocessors and evolved that into image processors and then RF communication and then optics into cameras and what's called star trackers. And then ultimately all that combined into laser communication. Your company boasts one of the fastest data speeds between satellites and the ground, but, well, I fear that, like me, my listeners need a one-on-one course to understand how light carries data. Could you give us the basics? Um, okay. <laughs> That's a uh, complex, simple question with a complex answer. So data is transmitted, as we all know, kind of eventually at ones and zeros, and the RF communication and sort of digital wired communication, it's kind of well known. There's some standards you can push digital bits out there. The difference with optical is those bits get pushed out there and then they get put on a um, RF communication. And I'll just say similar to a cell phone, but not exactly. But uh, And then there's a set of parts that convert RF and modulate that RF signal onto uh, a laser light beam, and then there's parts that demodulate on the uh, on the receive side as well. And this is done routinely, uh, probably even in this call, which is across the internet. At some point, we're communicating across fiber, and those same technologies are in data centers are sort of ubiquitous, and 
readily available. And what a laser communication system is from our perspective, what we do to make it more economical is effectively find ways to use those components. And if you will, we're going to cut the fiber, get that visual, and we're going to put it onto an optical telescope, point it well, and beam it across space, and then receive it on the other side back into that. So our approach is to look at the data centers for pre-existing components that can be used and do what we typically do, which is find the right ones, mitigate their problems, and make them usable on a satellite itself. The, the systems are comprised of a few different elements. There's what's called a modem, which um, a lot of folks recognize from either the old days of uh, phone modems or our cable modems. And that is something that takes digits and converts it into, uh, in this case, a, a laser modulated output on a fiber. And that goes into an optical amplifier. So you have enough photons to beam it across space. And those distances are, uh, they could be as low as uh, 1,000 kilometers um, and could be as high as 70,000 kilometers, which is a very, very long distance. And then it goes into what's called an optical head assembly, which is a bit like a telescope. They refer to them sometimes as a telescope, which has a coarse pointing system and a fine pointing system. And then there's uh, controls for all that. So um, that's what the system looks like. So what inspired you to develop laser communication terminals? I mean, tell us about your light bulb moment. When was it? Where were you? What were you doing? <laughs> I'm not sure if it was a light bulb moment, maybe more of an evolution. I think when we started the company, I don't even think we understood about laser communication. Um, now, that was in 2002, 2003 timeframe, but we evolved into a communication company and then uh, had optics and a customer who we were doing business with came to us and said that they wanted to build a uh, large network of satellites linked by laser communication. They knew we were one of the leaders in the industry in um, satellite processing and electronics and components, box level components, and they asked us to assist. When we looked at it, the, the market was dominated by ultra expensive national asset labs um, like ESA and NASA and Lincoln Labs um, and NRL, and they were building um, a series of scientists would build a, a very expensive instrument and proved you can build laser communication from space. Projects like the uh, Laddie project from NASA, they beamed um, lasers from, uh, from the moon or orbiting the moon to the earth. We were on that project as the uh, command radio, S-band radio for it. So we were familiar with its existence, but did not participate in the laser communication. And what we saw was an opportunity to take a technology that was, uh, I like to say, gold-plated and ruby-encrusted <laughs> price levels that were not commercially viable for anything other than national asset experiments or proof of concepts and commercialize it into a much more producible, lower-cost instrument or set of instruments that could be produced in volume. And that our first initial customer 
helped us see that um, in, in asking a lot of questions of us. And we realized we were definitely an organization that could move the bar in laser communication. Um, they did not continue on with their satellite, so um, we still do business with them. But uh, that project ended for them and other organizations stepped up. That's how we got started. Space Micro has been in business for, what, just shy of two decades? I've read that it was a contract with NASA that really kick-started Space Micro into what it is today, which according to Kona Equity is an annual revenue of 26, no, almost $27 million and 95 employees. What was that NASA project and how did that work? So it was actually two. The, the first one was an Air Force Research Lab contract immediately followed by a NASA contract, uh, maybe immediately being four or five months later. And they were two different parts of the same system. So the system was to a computing system, a processor that was high performance for space, where we solved the single event upset issues and the hanging issues caused by radiation. Elements like state machines or program counters, the processors will hang. And of course, that's not what satellite operators want is their systems hanging in space. And they hang at a rate of about once per month. And the bit flips happen regularly and routinely. So we came up with what we call a hardened core set of circuits that monitored the devices for hangs and detected and uh, brought them back in a very elegant manner. And we came up with software algorithms that could be used to what's called air detection and correction on the bits as the, like say the data bits or the control bits as the unit operated. So the Air Force contract was the first one and um, dealt with the single event upset of data and the NASA contract fit very nicely into the hanging or what's called single event functional interrupt as it's uh, it's a more technical name. And we were able to do those both together. And the result was a uh, state-of-the-art computer that was probably 10 times everything else that had built and still have this radiation-hard performance. And the Air Force picked up immediately and asked us to build a computer and, and a memory card for an imager for an Air Force project. And so we moved immediately into a flight project, which was lucky for a company as it starts out. And we were very thankful for that. And, and that project flew and flew flawlessly for like five years until they uh, turned the satellite off. You know, I saw a picture of the former Assistant Secretary of Defense, Will Roper, using a credit card to process a $750,000 payment to Space Micro at a 2019 Space Pitch Day. What did you pitch? That was a uh, fun day <laughs> in business. The, uh, we pitched a Lager's comm system, and it was the uh, Air Force Works pitch day. My partner, that was my partner, Dave Strobel, in the photo. So he handles the money, so he handled the credit card. And I did the pitch <laughs> in front of uh, approximately 45 people in a panel of about 12 of the Air Force satellite experts. And we pitched um, an Air Force uh, laser comm system that would take our technology and, and apply it to their applications. 
they gave us, uh, I think it was 15 minutes to do a pitch. They asked questions. They sent you out of the room and they made an instant decision. Then they ushered us. Uh, they said, yes. Uh, Bill Roper came up on stage and said, we're going to give you this contract. Shook my hand and said, walk down the hall. The uh, secretary of the Air Force, uh, she was in there and they had a contract. We signed it. They took the credit card said, we want to show you that the Air Force can move fast. And they swiped on a credit card that we, we had, and or they had the credit card with the credit card reader, and they paid us a portion of it. And we um, were able to, ultimately, they expanded that the next day to a $3 million contract, which is the maximum allowable. And we're building that system for them right now. Where is the project now? What's the status? So um, we, we built the, um, what's called the optical head. And it's a uh, for a uh, long distance link, and we just demonstrated it to the Air Force last Friday successfully, and they are moving into the flight phase next. So we're right at the completion of that that contract that was awarded that you saw the picture of, and moving into the next phase. This year, Space Micro has inked some pretty important deals and partnerships. What? Was it two days ago, Voyager Space Holding announced its intention to acquire a majority stake in Space Micro? What can you tell us about the deal? Um, well, that, that is correct. So Voyager Space has um, taken a, a majority stake in our company, and we're very pleased to join them. I think uh, as a uh, business of our size, we have grown along very nicely. It's, it's taken a number of years. 19 and a half to be roughly exact. And it's been self-funded by myself and uh, my partner. And the satellite community or satellite marketplace is starting to move a bit faster. And uh, I I think I can go out on the limb and say that uh, my wallet, my partner's wallet is not as big as uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos' wallet. And uh, in some dimensions, they're in the same field here. You know, we believe it's wise to get additional uh, support to grow our company and do the strategic path and, that we plan on and uh, build the kinds of projects we want to build next. So Voyager Space, they uh, appear to be a very, very good uh, partner for that. They're a, um, as their name indicates, Voyager, they're a holding company. And so we'll be operated as a, uh, a group that's independent from the others. So we'll carry on with uh, the Space Micro path forward. And we're very excited to be joining them. You also have a partnership with BridgeCom that started just, what, two months ago. You're not the only company working on optical wireless communication either. What's going on? Is this about more demand? Are we at the beginning of a new era for space-based communications? Yes, we are. We've been working with BridgeCom for a number of years and had a very quiet partnership, maybe on a project basis. We decided to formalize that. They have had a business plan that is a little bit different than ours. We're an equipment manufacturer, and they started by selling bits, and they're working on some newer technologies, and they were working for a manufacturing partner. They also build ground stations, and we build space space side equipment, so there's a natural partnership there as well. The second part of your question was, are we getting a new era in space? And and I believe that the answer is yes. Laser communication is a step function that has now been enabled by technology and 
companies like ours have made it producible at a price that it can be readily used, the ability to either secure the data is important for some customers or to have high throughput. So there's a number of satellite networks and they're using the, uh, their plans are to use them, rolling them out to have laser crosslinks between multiple satellites. And I have seen uh, a, good, a good example of one of those satellite networks where the same data is beamed optically through lasers and then also an RF. And the RF power of that satellite was five kilowatts. That same data done with light on the optical system was 500 watts. So there's a 90% reduction in power. And that translates not only to power of the system, it translates into the size of the batteries necessary, the solar rays, and therefore the size of the spacecraft. So if that was done in RF, it would take quite a bit more power and optical and, and the size of the satellite. So that, that makes a nice step function of capability for satellites and allows them to move to a lot more data rate and more advanced systems. And ultimately, what is this going to do for the Department of Defense or the 16 other national critical infrastructures, actually defense being one of them? You know, they all have a data communications dependency on space-based assets. You know, really, what's, what's the future look like to you? It will, for starters, and I think the most important near-term advantage for the Department of Defense and those type of applications is it will provide more security for communication. They talk in a phrase called a uh, contested environment. And what they mean by that is that when they have a uh, at, I think adversaries in a theater, there is a lot of um, various games to get an advantage, which becomes a threat for our systems. And things like jamming and interception of signals. And so this greatly changes the dynamic of that so that they can communicate and have a trusted communication and that's not detectable or fundamentally can't be jammed. Thank you, David, for joining me on the downlink. Thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, my first podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Downlink. Be sure to come back next week for the latest in space, business, and defense. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor, and Chris Cervello, the producer for all the Def Air Report podcasts. You can subscribe to The Downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.